we're live <laughs> and it's that simple right you press a button there you press another button there and then you're on the interweb kaboom uh welcome back doc uh i know it's, it was it was a short leave right and i just That's had to right. have you back on the show absolutely yeah happy to be back man um yeah no we were having such a great conversation it was like me you big ron Yep. But I was like, you know what? I want to get Doc Mason back on the show one on one. Right. A little bit more one on one. I have some more digging to do into your brain. Absolutely. 100%. I'm happy to do it. Um, for some of the new viewers or new people that are going to come on and catch this, because we've had a, there's been a, an explosion and some follower right. growth, um, introduce yourself and get, you know, let them know. Let them flex your uh, credentials a little bit on people. Awesome. Sounds good. Uh, I'm Dr. Chris Mason. I'm actually a, a board-certified ER doc. That's how I started my, my career in medicine. Um, I came to the game a little bit late. Um, did a few other things in the world of work, uh, from a drug rep to owning my own construction business. Uh, I was a cop for a while, a uh, protein chemist. Um, organic chemistry professor, uh, human anatomy, physiology, and then I went to med school. Um, so you did all that before you went to med school? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So like med school is this thing. Med school is this thing that like people talk about being this awful experience and takes up like 10, 12 years exactly. of their life. You would have had to taken this on like what age? What? Like 28, 30? I, I started that whole process at, at 30. It's never too late. <laughs> it's never it's too late. Never, I'm proof of that. Hell yeah. I'm proof of that. So what? So you were a cop yeah. leading up to being... A protein chemist. Protein chemist. What yeah. is a protein chemist? So protein chemists, what, uh, they do different things. Uh, what we were trying to do at the time was to try and grow crystals of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Uh, that's the receptor that fires your muscles, also responds to nicotine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a really interesting protein, very tough to grow crystals of it because it's a what we call a transmembrane protein, which means the outside and the inside of the protein or the ends of the protein, uh, like water, chemical or the, the official word is uh, hydrophilic. The part that's in the membrane, of course, membranes are made of fatty acids. It has to like fat. Right. So you can't really mix oil and water in that way. Right. So it's tough to grow those proteins. So what are your thoughts on nicotine? Using nicotine, just, just nicotine as a nootropic. Well, so nicotine has effects all across your body. You have, you have those nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. And then there's another form of that receptor called the muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. The nicotinic acetylcholine receptors are more related to the uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. So everything is up with uh, nicotine. So nicotine would like get you ready to go. Right. Right. So it's like. That's part of the addiction. Okay. So you're just live. You're yeah. just like a live wire right. anytime. Right. Ready to zap somebody. And it, well, it's interesting you bring that up, Dan, because where we would get the starter proteins of these receptors are from electric eels. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We had a bunch of electric eels in the, in the freezer and that's how we started. 
Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole nother podcast there. I think. Okay. Hell yeah. Because so, I've been thinking, I've been seeing a lot of people talk about using nicotine, like using nicotine patches or gum. Yep. Like before they learn something or learning a new task or skill. Yep. Um, and I've, I, I've been, you know, I'm always looking for new things to add in my arsenal. Absolutely. To, and, and, and I've always said that, that the poison is in the dose, right? So, so there's a purpose for it. And it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, the patch or the gum for someone who's not a smoker probably has some benefit in certain situations. Right. However, if you're a smoker, well, the clue is they use the patches and the gums to quit. Right. <laughs> right. So they're coming down off that, off that nicotine, I guess, high. Mm. But if you're always buzzing, right? It's a different world. That's why it's not good for you. Right. In addition to cancer and all the other stuff that the smoke, the carcinogens right. actually cause. Right. Yeah, that's the, they snuck that. Yep, snuck that in. They snuck that <laughs> They snuck that <laughs> That's why they always say uh, a heroin addict will give up his heroin before he gives up his cigarettes. Right. Like, <laughs> that's absolutely true. Right. Nicotine is like no joke. Right. Um, I've never been, I never got into tobacco products. Yeah. Never got into tobacco yeah, products. Yeah, me neither. Um, my dad make, made me and my brother smoke a cig when we were like, I think I was like in the third grade. Yep. And I remember he made us smoke a cig. So you wouldn't like it. So we wouldn't like it. <laughs> and it worked on me, but it didn't work on my brother. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it worked, worked on me. He's like, wow, don't. this is great. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> He's running to the store to get cigarettes right. in the fourth grade. Um. It took him a little bit longer right. to get on the cigarette train, <laughs> but I think he got the taste of it right. at that time, right. and then he was right. he was hooked. Yeah, I um, and then I also, you know how it is in sports, like a lot yeah. of guys like dip, right, right. Yep. And I played offensive line, right. And the offensive line room is like dip central. <laughs> Everybody's oh, really? oh packing big dips. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, everybody in the offensive line room's got a big dip in. They got a water <laughs> bottle with them. They're spitting it in. I'm the only guy. That's not spitting. Oh my god! So I would like get shit for not dipping <laughs> in the room, but I'm like, yo, I'm the only one here that gets women. You know what I mean? I'm the only buddy in this room that's getting laid right now. So, so there's got to be something to it. <laughs> that's what I told myself. I just it was always gross to me. I remember one time right. I put a dip in. I put a dip in. I chewed at a party in like high school. Yeah. And I like almost vomited. I got right. like super nauseous and right. was like about to vomit. And I was like trying not to vomit because right. I, I had to keep cool. Yep. You know, it couldn't be, yep. couldn't be a loser <laughs> right, throwing right. up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, there was like two other times throughout like life where I was like, this is gross, but let me try it again. Maybe I'll <laughs> like it this time. And then I was just like, no, nah, never again. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That I never, I never tried that. Uh, my mom actually tried the same thing on me and my brother with beer. Uh, same exact concept, but... Didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes sometimes just a nice cold beer just hits the spot. Right. It does. You know, the key is to keep it between one to two. Right. That's what I've found. Two beers, that's a good spot to be. Well, and, and we talk about that stuff. Um and again, it's it. I brought it up before the poisons in the dose. You know, mm. there are physiologic benefits to alcohol and coffee, particularly black coffee. Right. Cheers. Cheers. 
<laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Which include anti-cancer, anti-aging, antioxidant, brain health, heart health, um, all those things. But the problem is people get into deep water when they, when they abuse those things, right? Yeah. And they go over their, their limits. So, so because men and women are, you know, on average, generally different size, different metabolisms, whole nine yards, women's optimal dose is between zero and one serving a day. Of alcohol. Alcohol and coffee. Or coffee. Okay, or cool. Coffee. And that, at that point, they get all the benefit and none of the drawbacks. Again, they could have that dose every day if they want. Where they get in the trouble is, let's say, well, I didn't have any coffee all week. Well, on the weekend, I'm going to have three or four cups, mm. maybe a cup of coffee with dessert after dinner. So now all of a sudden they're at five or six cups in just one day. That's where they run into trouble mm. because now they've just traded their potential daily benefit of one every single day, seven cups a week for one day of five, which removed all the health benefit mm. in one, just in one sweep. So, so you would be better off a cup of, cup a day than you would be three or four or five cups in, in one day. Absolutely. hundred percent. Because at, at that day and the second one, you get no benefit. Is that because of your body's ability to process caffeine? Exactly. Yep. Okay. Is it the caffeine that is where the... The caffeine and other advantages in the black coffee itself. Okay. Antioxidants, things like that. And so what is that that's got to... I know with alcohol, your liver's the, the heavy lifter of the detoxification. Is it your liver also the detoxifier of caffeine? That's a good question. That's a good question for a physiologist, probably a little bit smarter than me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know the caffeine centers, the receptors are all over the body, particularly the brain. Okay. Uh, but in terms of, of, of detoxing it, I know that we all have uh, certain genes right. that help us metabolize caffeine. And some can like drink a cup of coffee or some form of caffeine right before bed and go right to sleep. Others, others are just jazzed and wired. wired yeah and they just yeah. can't they can't process they're slow metabolizers mm. yeah yep. you but, hear uh, so so for men men get two two servings up to two servings a day so when you talked about beer two pints of beer you know, yeah. well, two cans a serving is 12 ounces, 12 not, ounces. not quite a pint right yeah. Um, and so that's, that's probably where the, like the, you know, wine is good for you adage came from. Absolutely. And so beer has some benefits beyond the, the alcohol in terms of the, the, the wheat and right, the, the barley, hops. the hops, the, the malt, all those things, right. Uh, certain kind of carbs, yeah. right. The uh, fermentation process. Exactly. All of that. And then the wine, the red wine, particularly Pinot Noir grape. Right, has a lot of resveratrol in it. Mm, that's my favorite. P Pinot Noir is like that's my go-to when I'm out. Yeah, that's the num that's the number one grape for the resveratrol. So mm. all the, so when you drink that wine yeah, at your dose, which is again for wine would be two six-ounce pours a day, gotcha. up to two, every single day if you want. Right, so you could have zero, you could have one, you could have two every day. And you get all benefit and no risk, hmm. no side effects, no nothing bad. 
Oh, damn. Yeah. A lot of people are going to be rejoiced in hearing that yeah. information. But the problem is very few of us have self-control, right? To Keep it at two. Right. So the second you go from two to three. Benefits gone. All the benefits disappear. Right. So no, you don't even get benefits from the two that you had. Right. Immediately goes to harm after two. That's the best way to think about it. Damn. Yep. So it's like whatever good you had, you threw out the window the second you drank that third. Exactly. That third cup. Yep. A third six ounce right. wine glass. Right. <laughs> Got to stay strong out there, my friends. That's right. Uh, stay strong. Um, yeah, because my great grandparents are Italian immigrants. Right. They came from they're they're from Italy, a little village called Rock, a mountain village called Rocapia. Oh, 50, awesome. Fifty miles east of Rome. And so when they came over, they were farmers. Right. When they came over to the states, first my my great grandfather, my great uncle came over. They worked in the steel mills for about three years, made enough money to get a place and then be able to afford for my Nona, my great-grandmother, and my right. grandfather right. to now move over to the States. Wow. And so, which is crazy to think about. Right. right? It was a different time. I, it always blows my mind right. to think about back then, like there was no cell phone, right? right? They weren't like seeing reels of no like FaceTime. america right. and like no. what was going on right. over there right. like they got a there was like maybe a, 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 yeah, a letter or a clipping <laughs> in the newspaper maybe right. or a poster at the town square where they like were like you know what we're gonna embark on this journey it wasn't like they were they were getting like delta economy right, right. they got on a boat and sailed for four weeks across you know out of the mediterranean across <laughs> the atlantic to new york city right um crazy yeah when they would like when they would like tell me the story the room was like next to the to the uh the engine room right so it was just like super hot and loud super loud for like four weeks (laughs) um but when they moved over to the states they converted they were just like lawn made no sense to them like grass like having well-kept grass made no sense to them (laughs) so they like tilled the whole yard into a garden wow so whenever i would go over to my great grandparents place there was no like grass to mow it was just like hey help us till the garden in the spring (laughs) and then like i'd help them water it throughout um throughout the the summertime and then when fall started approaching we would like pick everything right Wow. and they would i grew up in erie pennsylvania in erie pennsylvania we actually have right a little outside of the metropolitan area is an area called northeast pennsylvania and they are like one of the top vineyards have one of the top vineyards uh or less known vineyards i should say in the united states but they grow a shit ton of grapes really and so they would buy they would either get grapes from there or they would get them shipped from california and in the basement they had these giant hundred gallon wooden barrels that they cut in half and they would throw the grapes in there and I would go down there with my grandparents and they would, my Nona would like get her feet like barefoot. So and she, would, she would actually stomp would the grapes. Stomp the grapes. Really? Stomp the grapes. Oh my gosh. And then they would ferment them and then we just had like homemade grapes. Wow. Yeah. Or homemade wine, sorry. Homemade. And so we always had wine. Really? Always had wine. See, there you go. And they would drink wine every, every day. Yep. Every day they would have a glass, but never to excess. Never to excess. I've never, I've never seen either one of them drunk, right? Right, or drink. There was literally like a glass at dinner. Yep. Maybe my nono would have two. My grandpa, right. my grandfather would have two glasses of wine. Yep. Um, 
But like that was it. And they probably lived long, healthy, happy lives. Yeah, they lived until they were 94, 95. See? Yeah. And there's a lot of what we talked about last time in that. But also wine is part of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, they ate out of a garden. Yep. They stayed active their whole lives. Right. You know what I mean? Like they had a, a strong spiritual sector. They had big, strong relationships, <clears throat> lots of social connections, strong family relationships. Every Thursday was spaghetti night and every Sunday was like family dinner. Right. Um, not everyone made Thursday, but everyone made Sunday. Right. So and that's the thing. Yeah. How, how many families do that? None these days. Not not very many. Yeah. That's something that I want to when I whenever the day comes that I have a family. Right, right. I want to like make that a tradition in my family. I think that'd be awesome. Every Sunday. Can I be part of your family too? Oh, we're you're already a part of my oh, family. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> you're already a part of my family. Because <laughs> I want to come with that Sunday. Hell yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's gonna be a lot of steaks at that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Ribeye. Ribeye. That's right. Ribeye. Some, sometimes a New York strip. Yeah, Sometimes maybe. a New York strip. Okay. Um, I, you know what I do a lot of sometimes? Uh, picante, which oh, is okay. like they call poor man's New York strip. Mm-hmm. But it's top sirloin with the cap, the fat cap still right. attached. Right. And I learned this from my all my Brazilian friends. Because okay. picante is like big in Brazil. Okay. And I remember when I was, <clears throat> when I was wrestling in WWE when I first got there. We, I met, you know, there's a melting pot of different, different people from all different sectors of like athletics, but then also from all corners of the world. Right. And so, you know, like anything or any new place, everybody comes in and they gravitate towards their people. So you have to like get a little clickish and like, right. Then everybody gets like comfortable enough to like mingle with everybody. And then I just remember going over with like the Brazilians for like barbecues on Sunday and they would just have like for hors d'oeuvres and shit, they had like picante cut up. And it's just like someone walks around and you just like pick little pieces of steak and it was just like delicious. Really? Just like some of the best steak. I, my grilling game went to the next level. Went with picante? Yeah, well, ha- well, hanging out with my Brazilian friends, like okay. learning some, I always had a pretty strong grill game, but they helped take it to the next, you know, I learned right. some new techniques that kind of took it to the next level. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, then it's good. Those are lifelong skills. Yes, they are. Yeah. Yes, they are. Um, and but, something you can pass down to the next generation. Yeah, people listening to this, friends. Exactly. My little, my little ones running around. Yeah. I imagine I'm probably going to have a ton of girls. Yeah. I don't know why. I have a feeling. You I'm have that just feeling. End up with a ton of girls. I'm just going to keep going until I get one boy. <laughs> there you go. And that's my one boy. I want. I you know, I don't mind having girls. Honestly, if I had four girls, one guy, that'd be cool. Yeah. That'd be cool. I just need one of each. Right. I don't care how many. I don't care what the ratio is. I don't care what the ratio is. I just need one of each. That's what I I said the same thing. But after two boys, Nancy was like, "Mm -hmm, no, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) I keep this is what I do with my partners is I tell them like, yo, I want to have eight kids. That's my that's a litmus test. Yeah. Eight kids. I want to have eight kids. And they're all like. (laughs) (laughs) but the key is to say it dead serious right right i say it dead serious and if they don't make a mad dash out the front door right but but it's potential i i set the the bar high and then i make them like then the negotiation because really in real real out reality like three right i'm I'm cool with three but I can talk them down. There's you know a, what I mean? I can make a, them feel like there's negotiation taking place. There's a, there's a sales strategy in that. Yes. Always <laughs> ask for more than what you want. Right. 
<laughs> right, I'm blowing my secret right now by telling the world this. Uh, but uh, hopefully, hopefully they don't hear this. Oh well, if it's out now, hopefully this helps somebody else out here. I'm sacrificing. Right. I bet it will. It will. I'm sacrificing for myself right, right now for the better good of everyone That's else. That's right. That's right. Um, but then I can like come down. So then it's right. like maybe it's five. Right. Because I I like the idea of having an army of little Dan's running around. Right. In a big huge truck or yeah. SUV or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hummer. Yeah. H one. H one old yeah. school Hummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do so like they do the the remods of the H ones where they completely modern like civilianize right the insides of them for comfort because those things I don't know if you've kind of like been, pimp my ride type of thing pimp my yeah H1. not as like off the chair yeah ride. like extravagant craziness but you know Viking Grail on the inside you know? <laughs> <laughs> hey Grail game there you go yeah <laughs> bring it to the next level they they bring they you know because I don't know have you ever been in an H one yes not very comfortable. Right. They're not built for comfort. No. And, and, and it, it's actually a funny story because it goes back to the days I had my own construction business. Okay. I worked for a lot of NFL players. Right. And, and, you know, we just had great relationships. I would build them stuff like a pool or a big gazebo outside or an outdoor kitchen, entertaining area, whatever. <clears throat> and, uh, and then we'd become friends, right. And hang out and go to parties and stuff like that. Lots of stories there, Dan. <laughs> Little white guy, bunch of huge football players. Right. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was great. But anyways, long story short, uh, hung out with a guy and his wife, guy is Lester Holmes. Uh, he was a, a wonderful uh, man, a monster of a man who played uh, who played offensive line, and yeah. for a while he played for uh, the Cardinals. But he had he was kind of a he came and went and. Yeah, uh, has a couple different teams that he played for. I lost track of him over time, but he was—I think he was from Georgia somewhere, from okay. South, maybe Alabama, somewhere around here. But anyways, long story short, he had a black H one, mm. and he and he took me for a ride in it. And the thing I noticed, I remember because I sat in the passenger seat, shotgun. It's like, hey man, <laughs> I eat it because it's so wide. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're far away from each other in that thing. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was. It felt cool to be in that. Yeah. Well, the, the so from a <clears throat> from a uh, like a they're virtually indestructible vehicles, right. right? You can blow off one of the wheel wells and it'll keep driving. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, <laughs> they were built for war. So right. from that's that, that that's the appeal to me. It's like you're right. having a vehicle that like you know maybe nothing's ever going to happen, but if something does happen, right. You're going to want to have a There's vehicle. There's going to be Dan and his five kids. Yeah. <laughs> four girls, one boy, yeah. and his wife. Yes. Rolling down the street. Prepared. In that H1. Prepared. Yep. Ready to go. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I've always wanted an H1. So I'm gonna, we'll have an H1 and have a little spot <laughs> in there. Um, so awesome. we were talking. So we got a little bit off track. We off did. Of what you were, that's, that's what you do when you talk, though. Exactly. You know what I mean? You got, you got the main story. <laughs> then you got side stories. Right. But the side stories loop back into the main story. Exactly. Yeah. I think we're, I was just I was still giving my background, I think, to new listeners. Um, yeah. So med school. And then uh, uh, went to residency. Got board certified in emergency medicine so what was the catalyst that made you go from you know police officer construction you know construction you know having your own construction company to then being like you know what i want to become a doctor right yeah it's it's 
it's uh it was an interesting uh, uh genesis and um and i don't want to give too much away either i guess but maybe for the benefit of other folks out there i think i'll i'll go into it a little bit yeah please do so right after my undergrad I had uh, actually while I was still in college, I got married to my lovely lady Nancy, mm. and uh, and um, we were just starting a family, right? Just had bought our first house, right? Um, everything was just getting started in our in our lives together. She got a great job with a major food company and and had a company car, expense account. She was a manufacturer's rep, um, and then I got a job. Uh, selling paper like Dunder Mifflin. Mm. Um, but soon after that, I got into pharmaceutical sales. So I was a drug rep. So at that point, we were both what I call affectionately trunk slammers. At that time, we had samples and stuff in our trunk. And so we'd show up to a call, we'd open our trunk, grab our stuff and slam our trunk and go in. But that came with, like I said, the company car expense account, expenses paid. Um, it was pretty good life for two young Two young kids. Right. <laughs> Just married. Still no kids of, of themselves. What do they used to call us? Uh, dinks. Double income, no kids. Mm. That's not a bad place to be. Yeah, it was Le- good. At least for a time period. And then I came home one day and I said, uh, you know, because I, I was thrilled with pharmaceutical sales and I loved the whole medical concept. I loved all the science and the physiology. I loved figuring out how the body worked. I mean, that just piqued my interest. Um, so I said, I came home one day and our young lives together, newly married, new house, planning a family and said, well, I'm going to quit my job and go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine how that conversation went. Right. Yeah. yeah. I can. So at that point, uh, became kind of a series of what I call professional distractions. And if we talk a little bit about behavioral health, right. Um, and kind of self analyzing what happened. I had never kind of overcome or gotten comfortable with the idea of, I know I can do something. I want to do something, but I can't. So what I need is something more flashy and exciting and engaging and interesting to distract me and my mind from what it is that I really want. Mm. That works for a while, but eventually the shine dulls and it wears off because you've never dealt with or addressed the root cause the one thing that's just kind of sitting there bubbling under the surface so what happened was is i as i started my own construction company and i thought okay i'm going to build a dynasty right my kids will be part of all this and i'm going to have a wonderfully successful business and it's going to be great but then after four years, five years, it was like, eh, this doesn't excite me anymore. You know, the, the, the allure was gone. And I still at that time didn't think, well, then what I want to do is, is get into medicine. I still thought I couldn't or shouldn't. So then I, I got into law enforcement. Well, that was from my brother. My brother's a, a career law enforcement officer he retired he's living a life of leisure now he did things smart way but he had always great stories to tell right and with those stories who wouldn't also want to wear a uniform and a badge and a gun around their belt and 
drive their car on the sidewalk with lights and sirens and arrest bad guys and and help communities and help people and stuff like that. I mean, it was a wonderfully fun job. But again, over time, the excitement wore off. That's what I went to school for was criminology. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So at that point, uh, I think I think what happened was I had a, a buddy of mine in, in the police department who was also um, on, in the National Guard. And he's like, hey, man, you should you should join the National Guard and you can get double retirement and you get all these benefits and it's fun. And at the time I was like kind of interested, but I told him, I said, I wouldn't do that unless I could be a Green Beret. <laughs> Thinking there's no way they would have a part-time soldier be a Green Beret or a SEAL or somebody like that. He's like, oh yeah, we got those. <laughs> <laughs> so I went home, I told Nancy, I'm gonna be a Green Beret. She said, no, you're not. <laughs> and so I have, have heard of Thank. We have heard of Thank for kind of redirecting and getting me back on track. Finally, after those professional distractions. That's what a good woman will do. Though. Absolutely. So we went to dinner that night. I remember it like it was yesterday. She goes, look, I see what's happening, right? Even though you don't, you don't realize it, but your distractions are putting our family like through more twists and turns and ups and downs than if you just bite the bullet and go to school. By this time, we had two kids that were in grade school, like young. Um, she's like, well, there's no good time, but there's never going to be. And she knew enough to say, to predict what the rest of our married life would be like with all these changes and all these different things that would come around, what's next? What's next? At least with medicine, she knew what, what I was going to do. Right. <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> so, so she got me back on track. And then, and then I thought in my brain, well, all right, cool. Now I got this plan in front of me. I better get myself ready. So I took my time. I was very, very methodical and thought, well, I'm going to test myself first by going to school and, and uh, getting a master's degree in biochemistry. Now, this is a guy who got a C in college algebra in my undergrad. Right. right. But I never could get rid of this, this thing that was eating at me. And again, it was part of, I think, looking back, self-analyzing, it was part of, I think, that, that repressed idea of, hey, I'm, I'm, I want to go to med school and I'm good enough to go to med school. So in all those times when I was a cop, I had my own construction company, all the stuff I told you about, I had never stopped going to school. I was taking night classes. Right. And I couldn't tell you why. Dude, why are you taking calculus one and two and each in a six-week summer course, which equates to six credits? You're a fool. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but I got a B, so six credits worth of a B is even better than an A. Oh, yeah. um, and so I took both calculus courses. I took Spanish language. I, I took a whole bunch of classes that I don't even know why I did. It just part-time, community college stuff. There's something about continually, always continuously learning. Yeah. So it really, it really gave me part of the energy I was probably seeking uh, in those other careers, those other jobs. So when I finally, you know, gave myself permission, uh, that's really when things started to turn. 
right? Because I needed Nancy's blessing to give then myself permission to pursue my dream. And that's when, you know, the rubber meets the road and mm. I was off and running. So I decided to test myself by getting a, a master's degree in biochemistry. And um, that was a big challenge because I got my, my bachelor's degrees in psychology, right? And I was never a science geek or a science nerd in, in school or, or in college. I, ha I had that mind, I had that curiosity. I was interested, but, um, but never had the skills until I started going to night classes because I wanted to, not even really knowing why, but because it was my thing, right? Um, so then I got this, uh, I got into a program at Arizona State University, biochemistry. <laughs> and I told them what I wanted to do, and I was, I was pretty much myself and told the, the graduate advisor I wanted to, you know, work on her team. Turns out she was the chair of the selection committee. And boom, she not only admitted me to the program, she gave me a job. So I was making money, and she paid for my school. And then I became the protein chemist I talked about. Right. And at the same time I was doing all this, I had to make a little extra money to support the family, do my share. So I taught, that's where I taught at the community college. And then I also taught at Arizona state university, mm. organic chemistry, anatomy, physiology, all that fun stuff. And then med school rolled right into that. So dude, I, I'm, I'm literally a lifelong learner, like not just figuratively, <laughs> literally. Uh, so yeah. And then that rolled, so med school was four years and that rolled right into a four year residency program in emergency medicine. Um, yeah. So that right there is eight years plus the two years of master's degree. So right there, you're at 10 years of training plus the four years of bachelor's. So that's 14. Plus I never really stopped going to school between bachelor's and my master's just part-time right so yeah i wore a backpack for many 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 years decades well, <laughs> well what is that what is that so from that's 12 years of 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 from making the decision hey and there's this little twinge in the back of my head that's that's telling me that i'm not on the right path right um and then taking that action to then being to seeing it like all the way through to exactly. be, you know, to become a doctor. Yep. 10 so, years, 10 years. Yep. So for everybody out there, who's like in there, you know, that are late twenties, early thirties that are like, Oh, it's too late. It's too, what am I going to do? I'm behind. Right. It's not, you know, it's not right, too late. Right. You're just you like, can, literally you're just getting started. Yeah, exactly. You can be behind, right? You just gotta start moving, move forward. Well, what is behind? Right. What's it relative to? Right. I was, I was, I was actually having this conversation with a friend, uh, actually earlier today, I think it was, or last night, be the behind concept. And a lot of people around my age f feel that, right? Right. <clears throat> They're like, oh, I see peers that are, you know, doing so well, or people that are younger than them doing so well. And they start comparing, especially with social media has made it really easy to like compare yourself to other people. Oh yeah. And so it's like, I'm behind, I'm, I'm behind. And to be behind would mean that like someone else is going to have to walk the same exact path as you. Right. And that you're behind them. 
Right. But like the thing is, is nobody ever walks the same exact path. Right. So therefore you never can be behind somebody. Absolutely. And so by being behind one, that actually doesn't exist, but two, by thinking that you've now framed this illogical, non-existent fr frame framing that is going to imprison you. Absolutely. And it's really nothing more than a figment of your imagination. Most, most of the things <laughs> we suffer are our own imagination. Absolutely. Um, so for everybody out there, it's like, hey, if you want to do something, it ain't too late. It's Absolutely. Never too late. Never too late. If you have breath in your lungs, yep. it's go time. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and there's, a nice, there's a nice like exclamation point to that. And it's the whole idea of how taking in what I said is, and it helps a lot. As an athlete, it helps, right? Um, especially golfers, right? They benefit by thinking this way. But the point is, and it's getting philosophical with it, the point is, is that the past and the future are nothing but figments of our imaginations. Mm -hmm. What's here and now in this moment is what matters. You, you can't necessarily predict or, or guarantee a certain outcome, but you can control what's happening now, right? right? And if you apply that to the whole idea, it's never too late. There it is. Yeah. Never too late. You want something now, then you make paths to go that way. Take steps. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yep. Um, so that led you into now your practice. Right. So what happened? But was, first, but first, I don't. Yeah. I, I think I. I don't know if you told me this or if Kay told me this about you. Um, but you were running. How many different emergency rooms? So at one point, right? So so I what I did as soon as I finished my my training is I pretty much got into leadership roles right away. Okay. Right, and I began to lead other physicians and manage emergency departments um, in hospitals first around Michigan, but then all over the country. Um, and so I still do that a little bit. Okay. Just a little. Um, but I also, for a time, there was like five years, five or six years, where my job literally was to, and this was just before, during, and just after COVID, was to travel to... ERs in need all across the country. Every place from South Carolina to Maine to Texas to Idaho, uh, New Mexico, Wisconsin. I was all over. Yeah. And, and that's part of what led me to my practice today, right? Um, and seeing that side of, of humanity suffer in, in the ways that they did. And like we talked about last time, most of it either directly or indirectly self-imposed. It, it really made me sit back and, and think a little bit about the state of our so-called healthcare system mm. and, and our behavioral healthcare system, right? Both of those. Um, and, and we are, as people generally, by and large, have become victims of that system. And it's not really a healthcare system at all. It's a sick care system. Mm. 
because because the system as it stands today, big pharma, big insurance, big hospital, big government, the system needs sick people. Right. So there's very little interest to prevent prevent and keep people healthy and more powerfully help people understand that they have within them everything they need to live a healthy, happy, long life. Everybody now is conditioned to think it's they'll find the answer in the bottom of a pill bottle or somewhere else, right? Um, so that led to what I do now, you know, lifestyle medicine. That's so th there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. My mind just like, whoa, yeah. whoa. So like <laughs> you were traveling to emergency rooms. Is yep. that correct? Yep. ER rooms. So you're, yep. you're traveling to ERs all around the country before, during, and after COVID. Yep. So first thing there, what was that like before, during, and after? What were the big differences you saw before, during, and after? Absolutely. It was crazy. So, so before COVID, um, we would see all sorts of people and different problems in different states in the emergency department. A lot of times it, you just scratch your head because of a lack of or perceived lack of access to everyday care. I would take care of people who took an ambulance to the emergency department so that they could get a pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a whole nother world. And then maybe my next patient would be dying and I would need to put them on life support. Damn. And from one to the next, right? And it would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that's a, that's a product of our, of our system. And so the ERs, by and large, were overrun and overwhelmed with people. Probably, at most, 20% of them, maybe 25, having anything close... To an emergency. To an emergency. Mm. What do you think that that's a... Why do you think that that is? What do you think that's a product of? It's a product of our system, Right. The hospitals love it because they, you know, ambulance ride, ambulance, yep, a lot of bills, a lot of revenue, right? Insurance company loves it, right? Because they're getting more revenue, more money. And the, the doctors, the primary care doctors that are in the community and the specialists are, are overwhelmed themselves, partly because of the number of patients seeking their help but also because of the, all the hurdles they got to jump over because of the insurance companies and because of the hospitals, that they make all these um, rules and guidelines and little things they have to follow so that they're only profitable if they can see 30 or 40 patients a day. And then maybe they get paid on 70% of them. Right, because the insurance doesn't pay out. Exactly. It, I, I found it interesting once when I was paying out of pocket and I let a doctor know I was paying out of pocket and I wasn't going to pay with insurance. You went right to the top of the schedule. Exactly. And, <laughs> and the bill was different. Right. They didn't charge me the same amount that the insurance company would be charged. 
because the even insur- with your copay and you're out of pocket. Correct. Absolutely. Because the insurance, what I, he was explaining to me was that the they will the insurance company will only pay up front. So say it's a thousand dollar bill. Right. The insurance company may not even pay half of that. Right. Right. Like thirty, maybe thirty percent right. if they're lucky. Right. Of that. So like the what he and so say it was a thousand dollar bill that I, when I first saw I was like oh damn I'm gonna pay this out of pocket and then he found out I had to pay it out of pocket and it got dropped exponentially because oh, yeah. he knew I was paying it exactly and then the issue with that whole thing is is that the insurance company might only pay half of it if that plus you got to pay your copay right plus if you haven't met your deductible yet you might pay the whole thing to the insurance company so they're pocketing the difference. I have found, so I, I'm a little, I've been sheltered from the insurance world uh, for quite a bit of my life, being very fortunate right. as being a professional athlete right. the majority of my adult life. Right. So I always had the best insurance healthcare that like money could buy. And then I s- circumvented the actual medical system because all the teams or companies I worked for had athletic doctors, essentially well, right. doctors that worked with athletes right. on site. Right. So if I needed an MRI, I wasn't going through the normal systems. Yeah, I exactly. was getting sent and like going through the back and right. I was get or the facility had an MRI machine or an x-ray machine. Like I was having a completely different experience. Right. And over the last three years, starting to be like having to be an adult in this sector, being like, <laughs> wait a minute, well, I got to get a checkup. You know what I mean? What? Right. Right. I like, I've got to do, I've got to do what? I've got to go to the dentist. I've got to go to the optometrist, all this shit. Right. How do I do this? Like, there's nobody just like giving me like, hey, Dan, go here, be here. I'm like, this blows. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we were overrun in the ERs, right, with people before COVID. And then when COVID hit, all those people stopped coming. They were gone. And then during COVID, we either saw COVID, broken bones, or heart attacks, strokes, or people who need to be put on life support. Here's a funny thing. The, the percentage of heart attacks and strokes we saw during COVID actually went down. Hmm. So in other words, people spending more time at home, mm-hmm. and, and here's the other thing, they weren't dying at home either. So you'd think, wait a second, here we have this worldwide global pandemic, and it's killing some people. But there's still got to be other bad stuff going on. Right. Still has to be heart attacks. I mean, the world can... didn't stop. Right. So, so, so the COVID just added to it, right? right. Well, not only did the, the BS visits, you know, the girl looking for the pregnancy test, stuff like that, stop, right? But people had less heart attacks and less strokes and weren't dying at home. So in other words, heart attacks and strokes during COVID went down. Hmm. And the only reason that I can see that is clear to me, especially in lifestyle medicine, is because people were spending time at home with their loved ones. They were working less. Right. Even though COVID was out there in most ways that were meaningful, they were less stressed than they normally are. Right. So some really interesting stuff in that. That's wild. Yeah. 
really interesting stuff. And it underlines the importance of some of the things that we typically take for granted, especially in this country. Yeah. Um, so to stay on track. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that to get off track, Yeah. To, <laughs> I think, I think that that is, because I'm, you know, people that may know me or see me from a distance, you know, be the world think that I'm this very like, probably like, yo, we're going to get, we're going to go get after it, work hard, yeah. work harder, which isn't too far from the truth. Right. Um, but I think we put too much of an emphasis on working hustle, hustle, right. hustle. Right. Right. And not enough relationships, not enough like relaxation. Exactly. Right. And yep. it's like, or we put too much of the emphasis because sometimes I don't feel like I, even though I work, I am working quite often and on a lot of shit. Right. It, the things that I'm working on, I feel energized from. I feel like they fulfill me. Right. So I don't know if I feel the same stress as other people that, you know, I have certain clients that I train that work for like big, like big companies, right. like pretty big, high performing companies where you've got to be a high performer. Right. You're on call basically all day. Right. Right. And you could get a call at any time to have to like a partner may call you and it's like, yo, it's go time. Right. And it may be like 12 o'clock at night and you've got to go. I, they, like when they come, half of me training them is like de-stress, like getting them to breathe before we even <laughs> exactly. start training to like right. de-stress them. And right. though you may find meaning in that somehow, some way, it's not really like that work is, you know, not to belittle that line of work. Right. What in the grand scheme of things, those type of jobs are doing what for you? Right. Right. Exactly. And I think we saw during COVID, a lot of people resigned from those jobs. Right. Right. And people were having a hard time getting people to come back into the workforce after the, the lockdowns were over. Yep. Because people were like, hold on a second. <laughs> I divorce rates New went up. Perspective. Divorce rates went up and jo and like uh unemployment went up. And I, I think a part of that is because people actually finally spent times with their their loved one and right. been like, oh, I don't actually, we actually don't like each other. <laughs> exactly. We spent so much time, I've spent so much time working, I never had to right. be around you. And <laughs> exactly. now that I'm stuck with you, we're getting a divorce uh, right, or right. splitting. Right. Or two, I actually love my family. Right. I don't get to spend enough time with it. And I actually fucking hate my job. Exactly. So like I'll make half as less that I was making <laughs> right. doing some bullshit job if I can spend more time with my family. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and there's so much energy that comes from that. That's healing. And, mm. and that keeps us healthy. Um, no, it's it's underrated. I think COVID is a blessing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because I think it helped, especially in this country, it helped pull the 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 veil of like hustle work, like the things that are we're told are important. We for a brief blimp in time we had the sheet pulled off our head and we right. got to see like, oh damn, that shit's not really that important. Exactly. And like, we need to start, I need to start like work like, oh, just for a second, the light, the room was illuminated. Right. And it was like, some people are going to just go right back to right. that thought right. process, but other people are going to be looking around. Right. 
thinking like, oh man, maybe I could do something more meaningful rather than like right. trying to aim to make $250,000 a year and have the car and this and a house and talk about God knows what right. with my other friends who are doing the same <laughs> shit. Right, right? Exactly. Like, let me do something that's actually going to help my family, right. help my community, like right. give back to others, yep. right, in the process. So I think to what you said about that, that thought process is healing, I right. think as a whole, like as a collective, right. there is this opportunity. I think we're already undergoing it, and there's an opportunity if we really dive in it to really heal, heal. as a collective. Yep, I agree with you 100% crazy yeah um i interrupted you somewhere um with oh yeah because i was i said to get back on track and you said to get us off track <laughs> no, yeah but those diversions are good no I, yeah I for sure great great um so i mean that's I how conversations about, roll right 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 so i think i think the the question was was what what was it like in the er's before during and after covid and so i was talking about during covid and and how and how interesting it was, was that, was that there weren't a lot of heart attacks and strokes dying at home, yet they weren't coming to the ER. So to me, that means that the heart attacks and the stroke went down mm -hmm. during COVID. Well, so then, of course, COVID happened and everything went through. And that's how uh, hospitals, some hospitals closed, little ones, mm -hmm. small critical access hospitals. They couldn't survive. Yeah, we were being told the hospitals were going to be were overrun. Right. And some were major metro areas. Those hospitals were overrun okay. with, with with COVID. Um, I mean, you had people being cared for in tents and outside and yeah. all those lines with the testing. And there was panic and pandemonium there for a while. Right. In the thick of it, the big metro areas, they were overrun. The smaller community-based hospitals, though, they they pretty much dried up. If they were in a low population center and people were just, they were obeying the rules and staying home. And then even though a lot of people got COVID, a lot of people didn't die from it. Right. Right. And now it's even less people die from it. Right. Because it's just, virus, viruses are smarter than us. And in order for the virus to survive, it's eventually going to become one of the many COVID viruses that are responsible for the common cold. Right. It's going to eventually become that yeah. because, because it's foolish of a virus to kill its host. Cause it can't spread. Exactly. Right. Okay. Right. right. So, so we're going to, I mean, we already are living with COVID now, but, but during that time, slowly, but surely, and like I said, hospitals closed, um, ER docs lost their jobs like when you when you finish your residency training in emergency medicine, a lot of times what'll happen is is you'll sign a contract like six months before you graduate for a job. Yeah. And then you move to that area, you're getting ready to buy a house, or maybe you buy a house, you you know, get all your life situated because you're like, hey man, in six to four months I'm done with this and I'm got my those contracts were canceled. Oh, like, sorry, we don't have your job anymore. You're on your own. So all that effort, all that time. So there are some residents graduating from emergency medicine programs that didn't, didn't have a job to go to, but they of course had all the student loans. They had to start paying right. back all right. the other stuff. Right. Of course. Right. 
Uh, Bills never stopped rolling yeah, in. Exactly. You had to stop going to work, but <laughs> we weren't going to stop charging you. Exactly. Uh, so, and then there were other docs who were still working in the ERs who had their pay cut. Some still haven't had it come back yet. Uh, staffing was cut. So when some ERs, they would have maybe a total of eight doctors coming on shift throughout a day. Maybe they went to six or five because the volumes were down and they still haven't come all the way back up to the staffing levels. But after COVID to get to that part of it, slowly but surely everything started coming back all the bs all the heart attacks all the strokes all the accidents all the trauma all the really sick people and a few covid sprinkled here and there but now pretty much er's are back to normal but to your point earlier the er workforce shrunk two things happened and now where most hospitals are in a, in a bad situation because they are actually hurting for ER docs. And what this means is, is for example, whoops, for example, what happened during COVID, people who were in medical school thinking of a career in emergency medicine from the sidelines saw Jobs go away, pay being cut, contracts being canceled. So they're like, well, I'm not going into emergency medicine. That field is dead. Right. Right. That field is dead. So for two years, people stopped applying to emergency medicine residencies. And so all of a sudden the numbers just drop, drop, drop. Right. So now this year there were 500 spots in residency programs all across, across the country that went unfilled. Damn. And that's the first time in a long time. And part of the other problem is not only are there less people, were there less people applying to emergency medicine, which is going to take a couple of years to get back because the, the market's moving faster than the supply of people to fill the roles. Right. Not only that, but during COVID, because of all these problems with pays and the cut in pay and, and cut in hours and cut in roles and positions, people said, screw this, I'm done, I'm out. And so they retired or they changed careers, they pivoted, they did something else. They got out of the ER workforce. And at the time they left, they were so pissed and burnt out, they'll never come back. Mm. No matter how good it gets, Right. right? So, so there are a couple forces at play. So you got, there's a double whammy there. Double whammy. And now, because all those people just started rushing back to the ER, the pregnancy tests. <laughs> right. Right. The I have an ingrown toenail, the, uh, you know, rash. <laughs> all these other things are now coming back along with all the other really sick people. Now, hospital ERs are busy again, really mm. busy. And they need doctors, so now they gotta raise the rates. They gotta they gotta make it more attractive, more lucrative. Right. But to a degree, they're speaking to far fewer people than they did before. Right. Because uh, people didn't apply to the residency programs, and uh, and a lot of people retired. So so after COVID, there's there's is what's building 
is enormous financial stress and strain on the hospitals because even though the numbers are back, they're having to spend more money on those people, more people, more money on more people to get them cared for. And so it's really kind of a, a cancer that's growing on an already terrible system, right? Because we can go all the way back to the beginning and ask ourselves, why in the world, in what universe, in what alternate universe would I want to support or be a part of a healthcare system that encourages or even makes people have an idea that I'm going to call 911 and take an ambulance to the hospital because I want the same pregnancy test that I can get at Walmart for just a couple bucks. Right. In what, in what alternate universe would anybody want to be a part of that system that encourages that kind of thinking or behavior? Because that's, I believe me, it's not costing that patient any money, right? But it's costing you and me. Someone's got to pay that ambulance ride. Right. Right? And, it, and it's just one person in the whole history that I'm talking about. But multiply that. By every minute, every hour, you know, every day across the whole country. Right. I mean, so part of part of the reason why people's premiums are so high, right, is because collectively we have all of these people need go needing, you know, air quotes for people who are just listening, right. needing right. to go to the ER, needing to go to the doctor. When these are simple, like there are a lot of very simple things that could be tended for. Preemptively. Preemptively. Exactly. Right. And so, so it's the, either a perceived lack of access or a real lack of access. And it's also conditioning. Because again, even though our system is being crushed by that as an example, the system actually needs it. Right. To survive. To, to survive. The system is its own worst enemy. Right. Like a lot of people. Like a lot of us. So what... What do you think, what's the solution? What's the way out of this? We've, we've kind of pigeonholed us here in this situation. Yes. There's a lot of very cynical uh, people out there, tinfoil hat people out there that are saying, that would say big pharma, big insurance are perpetuating this because this is what they want. They want this to happen, right? Yeah. Which there's probably some truth to that, right? If you know, I, any, yep. if you know anything about these yep. companies. Yep. Um, I think some of the cynicism, right, and the skepticals out there have very valid points because there are actual cases and situations that have taken place. And you're like, you're if you were a person and you did that, you would go to jail for the rest of your life. <laughs> exactly. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And 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 to your point, it's 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 actually quite amazing that that it's in a lot of ways it's true. So. So, give you an example with behavioral health. What is behavioral health? Behavioral health is uh, anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD. Gotcha. Those things. Mental health, aka mental health. Gotcha. Um, so, an example with behavioral health, back in the, I think, 80s, maybe the 90s, I think it was the 80s, there was a drug company that came out with a drug um, uh, and it was the first of its kind 
and it was an anti-anxiety medication. And it just so happens that the people, the scientists who worked for this drug company got together with the folks who wrote the book, who told psychiatrists what diseases were out there and how to treat them. They actually came up with a diagnosis and they called it anxiety. Hmm. So they took a normal human emotion and because a drug company had developed a pill that made that emotion feel better, then all of a sudden the doctor started prescribing the pill. So then they create, they made this normal human emotion and turned it into a sickness. Exactly. And now how many people do you know that say, well, I have anxiety. Dude, that blows my mind. Particularly my niece, I have a niece, she's right. 15 years old. Right. She talks all the time about having anxiety now. So here's, here's I'm what like, you say. I'm like, what the fuck does a 15-year-old know about anxiety? <laughs> exactly. And furthermore, it's normal. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Anxi and yes. here, let me help you learn how to deal with it. Okay, right. <laughs> right, I'm not, and, and, and again, I'm not dismissing or, or being dismissive of people who struggle. The struggle is real. Right. It's not all in your head. Right. Right. It's a real feeling. It's a real feeling. Um, so there's no sense in somebody like poo-pooing it or, or, you know, discounting it. It's real. However, the system has made it so that we no longer have the capacity, willingness, or capability to deal with it or to treat it in the ways that humans did for millennia. Do you think anxiety is a new problem, a right. new emotion? I mean, what about when, you know, humans were being chased by lions, tigers, and bears? Right. <laughs> That's a pretty damn anxious scenario. Yeah. Right? They dealt with it, you know? Maybe they chewed on some root or bark of a tree or hung out with family or, or did something, went to sleep, uh, but, but they dealt with it. And they didn't have an anti-anxiety pill, right? That could be sold to them. Exactly, right, exactly. And how do, so how can a pharmaceutical company, right, come up with a drug and then influence doctors, how doctors diagnose? How, how is that possible? Like that seems like, that seems like a, one, a conflict of interest and two, doesn't make sense as a doctor, right? Your job is to like learn about the body right physical mental spiritual right and then like how like those things kind of seem set obviously we're learning new things about the body constantly right but for a pharmaceutical company to come in and dictate what a doctor knows or how to like how does that happen it's all it's all sales and mm. marketing right and it's all sales and marketing overlaid on top of conditioning so just give you one example. So a doctor, a doctor in many ways, especially today, not so true in the 50s and 60s when medicine was different. But especially today, a, a doctor is, is kind of a slave to the idea that, that if a patient comes in and asks for XYZ, or worse yet, presents with XYZ symptoms, I have these standards and these guidelines, notwithstanding 
press gainy and uh, satisfaction surveys and the little surveys that the hospital sends out at the end that are probably tied to either my job as in terms of longevity or my pay somehow, either being docked in pay or getting a bonus if I act in ways according to the rules and the guidelines that even my hospital or my insurance company tell me I have to do. And then sales and marketing comes on top of that and says, hey, we got the answer to your problem. You need good scores. You need good patient satisfaction. In other words, doctor, you want to keep your job? Mm. You want to make a little more money? Or you not want to lose any money? Well, here's the answer. Here's this pain pill, right? This will take away your patient's pain. And of course, the hospital, every time that someone comes in and says, rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Right. For a while there, at the, at the very beginning and through the peak of the opioid crisis, they called pain the fifth vital sign. Yeah. And, and, and the whole idea was to essentially, indiscriminately treat pain, which conditioned us to believe there was such a thing that should be strived for as a pain-free existence. <laughs> right. That's not human. Right. What, do we want to be a bunch of robots? Right. There's no such thing as a pain or suffering-free existence. It's part of the human experience. There has to be times of pain. There has to be times of suffering. There has to be times of anxiety. There has to be times of depression and grief. Almost seems like a prerequisite to get to the next level. Exactly. As a human. Right. We go through these peaks and valleys of good times, bad times, good times, bad times, the bad times. There's exactly. usually a good deal of pain somewhere. Exactly. And, and going through that process helps us. And, and, and the problem is, is that we're conditioned, not only everything I talked about, we're also conditioned to run away from that. And that was an example of the, you know, my professional distractions when we first started talking. I was kind of running away from the idea that, that I couldn't or shouldn't go to med school. But by running away to it, I wasn't necessarily running to something else, right? So it's kind of the same movement in the same direction, but for different reasons. One's a good reason, and one's a bad reason. Right. You don't be running away from something to something else. You want to be running to that thing. Right. It's kind of like what they say with dog training, right? If you, your little puppy runs out and escapes out of your house, you know, they say, don't chase after it, run the other way. Right. Then the dog will go, oh, wonder where he's going. Right. Come trotting back. <laughs> so, so a lot of ways, the system has conditioned us to run away from things that are part of the normal human experience. And then we don't learn from it. We don't grow from it. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, I'll say my age, my generation, right? And, and they look back and they say, you know, we talked about it. We were joking about it this morning. Uh, Pre-workout, right? I was yeah. teasing you one, one, of your, one of your last uh, social media posts. I took it as, hey, you don't need pre-workout. Just get to work, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's a quality fire to that, so... I respect that. <laughs> but I took it as, as, what, Dan, didn't you say in your last post that your pre-workout -work is nothing more than grit and mental toughness? 
I mean, to an extent, for sure. I mean, there is, there's, that's, I take pre-workout at times. You know what I mean? I have taken yeah, pre-workout. Yeah. I, I totally get that. But yeah. my misunderstanding or, or my mishearing your, 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 uh, your post has meaning here. And that is a lot of people in my generation and, and older think or feel like, God dang, where is the grit and mental toughness? Yeah. It, it's disappeared. By and large, on average, right? There's exceptions to every rule, but by and large, on average, uh, it it seems like the the appearance is there's a lack of that. I I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I think my generation and the generation below me um, has a deficiency yeah. in grit and mental toughness. Right. Um, now I think maybe your generation almost had too much what we may say grit and little less emotional like intelligence right right and where yeah. it was like i i think the reason why my generation swung in the opposite direction was because your generation was almost we saw all the pitfalls of that right right yeah. and then instead of taking all the good that comes from that and, and using that, we a lot of people just, they ran the opposite way. Right, and reacted, and reacted in the setting of pressures and, and influences from our system, which is a consumer-based system. Yeah. And when you apply that to healthcare, it's the same concept. When, when, when a, the pendulum is swinging, but in a, in, in a, in a universe of influence, it swings off kilter. It's not swinging in the same path, right? So it might be bumped to swing in the other direction, but but off center. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. I think, <clears throat> and another thing with our generation is the. I think we looked at well, well one somebody raised our generation. Um, which was your generation. Exactly. <laughs> so we had, we have our own influence and we talked about that side too. We're, we're, we're a product of our environment. So. Right. Your, your generation raised our generation. Right. Um, I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of coddling though. Right. I think there was a lot of coddling. There continues to be a lot of coddling right. that has taken place. Yep. Right. And some of that might be because of how harsh, the gen your parents generation exactly. was on you guys yeah you didn't want to perpetuate which i think there is i think we're learning that we don't necessarily have to be so hard right all the time right. But there's like this middle there's a middle ground exactly. right like we were talking about there is a place for suffering Balance. right there is a place for suffering and pain right. right it's a prerequisite especially for for boys right right i mean for all humans but particularly boys need more pain right. and suffering more adversity in their lives yeah women kind of they're born with a right. with a like their their uh prerequisite of pain and adversity where like us boys and you know we're much harder headed we need some yep we need <laughs> we need to learn the lesson yeah we need to learn some lessons <laughs> we need a, a hard club to That's the right. head sometimes yeah, exactly. um to help us get to you know to travel from boyhood into manhood right um so i th i i always lean back to participation trophies right oh there we go you know 
like my generation was the first generation that started getting participation yeah, right, trophies. Right. And I think we can, people joke about it all the time, but I think we can point to that and be like, mm, this right. might be the start of why we've got so many softies. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I mean, got a lot of softies. You win if you participate. Yeah. Right. That, that concept is because again, it's, it's not, it's not survival of the fittest. And for millennia, it was survival of the fittest. You know, that's how we, evolved right i think that there's something to everybody like feeling included right? right people need to feel included they should be included especially in team sports or any type of sports but to get a trophy like a trophy is held for the winners right right if it's track and field it's like the the six winners right you right. get a, you know a little different than other sports but you get the six medal spots uh in team sports there's a winner and loser you win the tournament you get the trophy right there's there is something to that i think we've put too much of an emphasis on it's okay i don't think and i think this is where people who are not athletes or who've never been in a competitive atmosphere or never played team sports started legislating stuff and saying right. we need trophies and we need to be more inclusive right. and it's like they don't understand that some of the best not some of all of the greatest lessons one can be learned can be learned in losing a game exactly you can become and evolve into your best self by losing games 100 percent agree losing with is not actually losing some of the most like glory, like some of the most joyous moments in my life, not at the time, but now looking back are the ones that I coveted the most, I guess, are big losses. Absolutely. I, don't get me wrong. I love all the big wins that I've had. Right. Right. They're great. The awards I won are yeah. awesome. Right? right. I got a, I got a trophy case. I'll show you a bunch of them. Those are awesome. But to me, the valiant losses. Right. Are what really, I think, help make me become the man that I am. I agree with you. And that's, and that's why sports in general, athletics in general is a great example of life. Right. I mean, I mean, that's not just winning and losing it's, and it's not, it's not necessarily, I think, ha forcing everybody to be included. It's, allowing everybody the chance the opportunity to be included right and then and then creating scenarios and an environment which they take it they learn what decisions they need to make to take advantage of the opportunity to be included and participate and then and then there's history is absolutely littered with the concept that that you just brought up which is which is really the greatest successes in life generally come from a or a set of failures. Mm. Right. And, and, and you just gave a great example of that. I think running from losing and running away from the pain of a loss is going, if we continue on this path will be the biggest downfall of humanity, particularly amongst men. Right. And I think, and I, and I, I blame other men for this, allowing this to happen. Yeah. We always, there's this like attack on masculinity that people talk about. 
And I don't disagree that there has been some like harsh critiques of masculinity. Right. And some of them are very valid. Right. Some of them are valid. But I would say what they really are is critiques on the immature masculine. Right. Not the mature masculine. Right. And there's not enough men standing up and taking, you know, because masculinity, it's not like it's not easy. Right. It's not supposed to be easy. Right. Sometimes doing the right thing will be hard. Right. And so this is a, a time period where it is hard to actually be a man and stand up for what it is to be a man. Right. Right. But that is your job as a man. And throughout history, the elders, the guides, the magicians, right, right. of masculinity's right. role is to guide the immature masculine into adulthood. And we are finding less and less and less of that. And yep. the last kind of bastion of that is athletics. Right. Absolutely. And it's slowly eroding. And so I challenge all the men out there who keep saying like, Oh, I'm going to like leave the dating scene because it's too hard. I don't want to be like called this or that or accused of this right. or always talking about, Oh, I've got to be careful what I say. I say to you, sack up. Right. You know what I mean? Like that is like, that's immature to me. You're being a coward. Right. It actually, you need to do the opposite of that. Like if, if your beliefs and actions that a man, as a man are true and, and, and moral and, and have value, they'll hold up. Right. And in the right context, people will hear and understand, and you'll be fine. But especially if you're mature in that. Yeah. Right? Because the immaturity can span that whole, that whole concept. Yeah, for sure. Right? And, 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 it, and when we talk about men and masculinity and, and then appreciate women and femininity and really understand that that men are from mars and women are from <laughs> venus yeah and really i think the the secret sauce is in really celebrating both of those hell yeah right and so being the 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 masculine man sometimes i mean most times being strong in your masculinity is supporting femininity and women with just as much vigor and energy. I agree. Right. And it's all about, it's all about how you do that. Right. And with what level of maturity that you do that. So I agree with you a hundred percent. I think, I think it needs to be taken to a, a lot higher intellectual level, right. For than most people can actually appreciate. I agree with that 100%. Yep. I think, and, and this isn't like, Mask, it's not one versus the other. Right. And I, you see a lot of that right now. It's, it's one versus the other. One can, you cannot define masculinity without talking about femininity and vice versa. Exactly. Like when you look up the definition of masculinity, femininity is in the definition. Right. And same thing's true with femininity. Right. And it's a spectrum too. Right. Because like people see me from a distance and they assume and see very masculine traits. Right. And you're not wrong. Right. But also, I have some very feminine traits as well. Right. And as I've gotten older, I don't run from them. Right. I don't, like, I'm not afraid of them. Right. In fact, I embrace them because I think it actually makes me stronger. Right. It makes me a, a more well-rounded, stronger man. And right. I think, if, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, I think as we start getting older, 
we stop the immaturity or the the illusion of being tough a tough man right. starts dissolving right and it's like yo i'm not afraid of my emotions right well now. that's where wisdom sets in yeah that's where wisdom sets in and and we talked about this too uh, about even to the hormonal level right by and large people think oh you know femininity women estrogen right masculinity man testosterone well actually men and women need both for the exact same reasons right so it's there it's already encoded in us it's in our bodies right we are all both men and women in the simplest terms yeah hormonally it's just that the proportion of the hormone balance dictates our i guess sex when we're born and that's the balance for us yeah either more testosterone than estrogen or more estrogen than testosterone but both are there and we need them in those ratios to be balanced and that's kind of uh the physiological corollary to what you're talking about in life right so it goes down to the cellular level it's um I was listening to uh, the the astrophysicist. Um, I can't remember his name now. It's on the tip of my tongue. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes. Okay. And he made a really awesome point. You know, he said he said the the four most common elements in our body or or atoms in our body: hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen. That's what we're made of. And then he goes, "What do you think the most?" common elements are in space in the universe hydrogen oxygen nitrogen and carbon so so yeah i mean that's that's a perfect example it's all within us yeah right um it takes it takes wisdom patience understanding maturity to to express it in in ways that are that are productive and and positive for all of us because we're all that energy you know i talk about that with my clients you know it's all about energy it's a it's a conservation of energy energy is neither created nor destroyed it's only uh it's conserved number one but number two it's transferred transferred so so it's we're all energy that's what it is yeah and we're actually all going the same direction right everything is is we're, we're all moving towards something right whether it's toward something good toward something bad whether the forward movement is us running away or running to mm. right the positive part is running to but we're all the whole universe is moving forward time yes going forward never stops never stops so always expanding it's unidirectional it's unidirectional and and i think the better that we understand all of that that we just talked about we could solve the world's problems <laughs> <laughs> really yeah <laughs> i mean i think I and mean, that's profound that's profound stuff you know very profound sometimes you look at it and it's like it's so simple yet. yeah yeah it's so it seems so challenging at the same time right right some of that is like conditioning right and that's the word we use to fix it 
because you asked earlier, how do we fix this problem? A lot of it is the stuff we just talked about, right? But how do you get it from where it is now to, to a better system? Well, it's complicated, and it's, it's going to take a lot of time, energy, effort, investment, money. And some would argue it's just not possible that, that uh, you know, that there's no way to rein it in. Uh, because of the power of the conditioning that's happened. But I like to think that a small part is lifestyle medicine, right? Is a way to get people to really understand that they're empowered, empowered for their own health, wellness, and longevity. That, you know, maybe they can come off that blood pressure medicine by, you know, losing a few pounds, right? And starting to eat the right foods, and maybe decondition them a little bit from, from feeling like they have to, they, they are a normal human emotion, therefore they have to treat that normal human emotion right. with the drug. Um, you know, to not really incentivize it so much. Um, I mean, because the drug companies are a business. Insurance, it's a business, right? I mean, a lot of people argue that business has no role in our health, wellness, and longevity. Right. So it's very complicated. Um, yeah, that's one of those things where the people who who are anti-capitalists, that's where they, the, their points actually, they have valid points. Yep. When profit is like the, the brass ring that everyone's reaching for, morality, especially in things such as health. Right. Right. The only thing you care about is profit. And so therefore the morality, right? Like what's doing the right thing can be sidestepped or avoided, or you could find all these ways to rationalize doing right. something else for profit rather than like the collective good. Exactly. I mean, years ago, we already talked about my, my story. When I was a, a protein chemist, right? At Arizona State University, I worked in a lab where they were, they had with these little snippets of RNA, we all kind of know RNA from the, from the um, COVID vaccine, vaccine yeah. right? Well, that was called mRNA, right? There's more RNA out there. It's called micro RNA. Oh, damn. Micro RNA has the ability, properly engineered micro RNA has the ability to turn genes of expression on and off mm. and you package this little micro RNA in the right particle, like a outer shell of a virus, which is very, can get around the body very easily undetected for a time. And you package this micro RNA and you, you design it or engineer it so that it's attracted to the very switch that it either turns on or off. That was out there that was being worked on. In fact, they had cured lab rats of Parkinson's disease. I'm sorry, Huntington's disease. Hmm. What, that, is, what is Huntington's disease? It's, it's another disease, kind of like Parkinson's, that okay. is a, what we call a neurodegenerative disease okay. that causes your nervous system and muscle system, which it feeds to break down prematurely and, and, uh, and it takes your life. Um, so, 
So they not only cured these lab rats of Huntington's disease with the microRNA, they stopped the disease in its tracks. So in other words, when those lab rats previously affected by Huntington's now cured after the microRNA had babies, the babies no longer had the Huntington's disease gene. Mm. So it took this disease, and not only cured it, but it prevented passing it to the progeny. Are we going to live in a world where we're going to be able to just turn off diseases? I don't know if that'll ever happen. Because they don't want to turn them off. Exactly. But they'll want to sell the cure. They'll want to sell, they'll want to sell the ability to turn on or off. I don't know. I don't know. Why hasn't that come out yet? Because they haven't figured out a way to, like, to, to make the money off of it. That's probably it. Right. Like maybe, maybe it's out there and there's one flat, like, oh, there's right now they're thinking one, like, one flat fee. But what if they figure out, hey, if you want your child to be born like a designer baby, right? You want it to have blue eyes, right. you know, caramel skin. You want oh, it to yeah, be we six, can do that now. six, seven. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Like CRISPR. Technology's there. Right. And yeah. you do all these things. It's like, oh, okay, it's going to be. $2.5 million. I'm like, well, I can't afford that. And it's like, well, I'm glad that you said that. Well, I'm glad that you said that. <laughs> For the rest right, of right, your life. Right. What we can do, we can actually put you on a payment program. And so maybe with, uh, what, what, what could you put down that would be a comfortable down payment? Can you say $50,000? $50,000, right. okay. Well, if you put $75,000 right. down, we could drop your monthly payment. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, what's that interest rate? Ah, oh, don't worry about that. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? Don't, ah, well, it's, uh, you know, it's like 25%. Interest rate. <laughs> right. See, then that's pretty much, you know, what we're talking about. There's, there's, <laughs> they haven't been able to monetize it yet. And the treatment of Huntington's disease right now is probably worth tens of billions of dollars more than, than stopping it right. in its tracks. Uh, so, so I'm, I don't, I don't say that we should, you know, feel like, even though we are victims of the system, like I said before, I don't think we should actually play the victim. Right. I think we should never play the victim. Right. I think we should understand and appreciate kind of the position we've, we've been encouraged to occupy. Yeah. But then also take measures to get out of that. Right. And to establish our new lane uh, where we say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, I have the power within me to live the kind of life that I know is best for me. If I want to live a long time on this earth and be a value, right, and have my life mean something more than just me kind of moving forward like a robot, right? Then I'm consume, gonna, consume, right. make more money. Exactly. Then I'm going to do car, these things, right? Roll this loan over. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what would you say? So, like. What would you say are the best thing, like the best things to start implementing to increase the the lifespan? You know, the physical lifespan, and then also uh, your longevity or in your well or the fulfillment of your life, which probably all tie together. But like right. as as a doctor, yes. right, who yep. specializes in this, yeah, what would be like your core tenets? That I know you have the six pillars, yes, but within those six pillars, what would be the things that are going to give people most bang for their bucks? I think it's probably the last three sleep, stress, and relationships. And I think really the last two are probably the most underrated, therefore, carry the biggest bang for the buck. 
reducing so, stress, improving relationships. Exactly. So I would say steps people can take tomorrow. You know, part of it is, again, we, we run up against this conditioning. And we talked about how masculinity, femininity run together and both sexes actually have both. Yeah. And they should appreciate that. They should celebrate that, right? And so I, I talk to a lot of guy clients. And when I talk to them about yoga and meditation, they're like, ah, that's for girls. I don't do that. That's for girls. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah, you'll get your ass <laughs> smoked in a hot yoga class. Exactly, right. So so first got to get past that, right? So get over the fact that you feel uncomfortable in your own head because of preconceived notions or whatever you've been conditioned to do or right. think. And get yourself in a quiet place, a comfortable body position, close your eyes, and just sit there or lay there. And then breathe in and out through the nose, not through the mouth. And you count your breaths. In is one. Out is two. In is three. Out is four. And you do that, you get to 20. And then you take a small break. And then I tell people to get in touch with one of their senses. Most times it's a skin what do you feel? Yeah. Do you feel your toes tingling? I think about that. I can feel them right now. Fingers. I can feel like a certain area on my back. I think about it. So get in touch with the senses and then do another set of 20. Right. And then on the next break, get in touch with another sense. And pretty soon your mind is so finely tuned and focused on your breathing and your senses that you just by default have minimized distracting thoughts. Mm. Oh, I got that report due tomorrow. Oh shit. Yeah. I forgot about the dog food. Oh, I got to go get that later. Oh yeah. And I got to pick the kids up and drop them off. Oh, and Joey's got a party tomorrow. And oh, that other work assignment is really bothering me. And I forgot to call John back. Dang it. I got to call John back. Right? Yeah. All that stuff that just plays in our head. So we, we, we have to be able to develop a calm and quiet mind to where it's shielded, you know, and we develop skills in doing this so that we can do it at the drop of a hat. That we can do it maybe when we're relaxed to become more relaxed or when we're stressed and we know we're stressed and the stress is in the prefrontal cortex of the conscious mind, right? Where it normally operates in the subconscious mind. That's where it all starts. It starts in the primitive brain, goes up and down our spinal cord. Um, we might not ever even realize that we're stressed, right? So, so becoming mindful and practicing meditation, I think is, is probably the, the, one of the biggest bangs for the buck um, in that process being able to, to do that on command and have a, a quiet mind, a calm mind, is, is control of your own mind, mind control. Yeah. And here's how I put it. Think about it. Our entire existence while we're alive happens where? Between our ears. Mm. So if we can control our own mind, it stands to reason we can control our entire existence. Yeah. 
whatever it is we want to do or think or act. We can control it. So, so I think meditation and mindfulness is probably uh, one of the biggest bangs for the buck. And a, a listener or a viewer right now, this minute, can actually do it right now. Right. Yep. I mean, I could even you know guide us through a meditation, and and somebody could start. That's something that somebody could legitimately start right now. Get themselves. They can get themselves to a quiet place, a comfortable body position. Turn off the mind, and just count on the breathing. And then, the point about distracting thoughts because they'll come in your mind. They will. I don't want people to punish themselves for a distracting thought. Right. I want you to do the opposite. And here carries through the theme of our entire conversation today: is running away or running towards something, acknowledging an emotion or acknowledging something for what it is, forgiving yourself for everything that led up to that, which frees your mind, body, and spirit to move forward in that positive direction toward something. And so with a distracting thought, I don't want you to punish yourself for a distracting thought like, Dang it, Doc Mason told me I have to minimize distracting thoughts. And here I am thinking of what I'm going to make for dinner tonight and the other stuff and the work. And I don't want you to think that. I want you to go, oh, yeah, I think we're going to make spaghetti tonight. Awesome. Acknowledge the thought. So then you then give yourself permission to say goodbye. You say hello so that you can say goodbye. Mm. So that person that you, you know, walking on the other side of the street that you like kind of know, but kind of don't. And you think, oh man, if I just ignore them, it'll be fine. And I can just hurry up, get to my destination. Right. But they're like, they won't let you ignore them. They're like, Hey, Dan, Dan, Hey, Dan, the man, Hey, Dan, what? And they start chasing after you. You're like walking faster, going head down, going (laughs) right. That whole thing would not play out. If you'd say, Hey man, how you doing? I got to run really quick. It was so good to see you. You said hello so that you can say goodbye. And it's the same thing with a distracting thought. A distracting thought pops in your head. You say, oh, okay. Hi there. Now you can go. And whew, pass like a cloud in the sky. That's how I want you to treat a distracting thought. And then go through this process. And, and the, the method I described here is literally for beginners. Like this is for somebody who's, you know, like the person who's not comfortable in their own head. We're training you how to get comfortable in your own head. Right. There are advanced techniques, apps for your phone, your watch, coaches, podcasts, uh, books, audio books, all kinds of stuff out there on how to become mindful, how to meditate. This is a real world practical solution to someone who has never done that before right. and might be totally uncomfortable. So that's kind of one of the biggest bangs for the buck that someone could just tap into a whole new energy source starting tomorrow with... Uh, requires with nothing. Yeah, requires nothing. Requires nothing. Yep. Don't have to buy nothing. Don't have exactly. to be anywhere. Right. Low, the lowest of low-hanging fruits. Exactly. But, again, the highest yield. Mm. It's the sweetest fruit. Mm. The kind you're... Nana had stomped with her feet. Right. <laughs> That's such a cool story. I love that. 
What childhood that must have been. Really cool. And then the other, the other bang for the buck is, of course, relationships, you know. And we can talk about that if you want. Yeah. No. Well, let's talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so relationships, we take really, we take relationships for, for granted in so many ways. Um, and it's just kind of like life passing us by. And the, the corollary there is we're just walking by an energy source. It's kind of like, kind of like it's free for the free for the taking, and it's uh, it's unlimited. There's no limit, right, to the energy that's available. And we talked about how conservation of energy and how it's not created or destroyed, but just transferred and transformed. And recognizing that and using that energy, kind of selfishly, the nice reason it's unlimited is when you use it selfishly other people benefit. It's really cool. It's probably the only thing in the universe that can be that way. Wait, say that again. When you use it selfishly, other people benefit. Benefit. Okay. That's really cool. Really powerful stuff. So with regard to relationships, humans and a lot of other animals and organisms in the universe, but particularly humans are social creatures, right? Our mind, body, and spirit thrive off of that energy that's created, or not created, but that's transferred with healthy, positive relationships and strong social connections. But too many times, like in that example I gave earlier, we're, we're busy, we got somewhere to go, we got something to do, we, we pass by that opportunity to even in an instant create a positive connection. I'm guilty of it too, you know? I'm tired, I'm, I'm worn out, I spent a whole day, I'm on the road, I'm traveling, I get in that elevator, you know, on the first floor of a 10-story hotel. I got to go to the ninth floor. And this family gets in. I'm like, hey, and they hit three. I'm like, shit. And then they hit, someone else gets in, and they hit five. And then some other guy's like, oh, shit, I forgot. I got to go to the seventh floor, seven. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit. I just want to get to my damn room. Right. You know, now I got three more elevator stops. How petty is that? <laughs> and I miss an opportunity. How dare you want to use this public elevator? Exactly. You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. So, so I, I miss opportunities too. I mean, nobody's perfect. But, but the best we can do is to realize that even in an instant, we can create a really powerful positive and strong social connection and that can be in relationship and that can be anything from a momentary pass by of a stranger all the way through all relationships all types all the way through to people you love and care about deeply right and and understanding what it is about us that can somehow energize that encounter with positivity so that that becomes our aura that that becomes the aura that people talk about that 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 influence that you have you know i mean people have this saying oh yeah when so-and-so walks in they just light up a room yeah well they know it they they get it and maybe they don't even get it but they get it right and, and those are the people we should strive to be because that's all within us 
to really understand that energy and to take advantage of that. And that's what I said before is it's free, it's unlimited. And when we use it all for us, everybody else benefits and the energy just explodes in a, in a positive and, and strong way. So I try my best to not be the Doc Mason who's tired and just wants to get to bed and, you know, raise the, get your posture right, look him in the eye, uh, smile and a nod, right? Pushing buttons for him, stuff like that. All that is just, it'll actually make me sleep better. And I got to realize that, you know, uh, most times I try and pay strong attention, but it's funny because with me, I'm on a lot when I'm working, when I'm working with clients, when I'm working with patients and mm-hmm. ERs, I'm on and I am that guy. Right. But when I'm done with that, I sometimes want to just be in my own head, you know? Yeah. But I'm missing out. When I'm in that mood, I miss out on the, on the, on that relationship piece. Is there, is there, <clears throat> is there, an, I guess, a drawback to like needing to be, to turn off, I guess, or be, or go inward if you're always on? Like, it, it, is there a benefit to that? Or is that like you're saying like, yo, you can always be on? I think there is a benefit to it. Okay. Right. But you should balance that benefit against even a momentary opportunity to exploit some of that energy. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you need that for fuel for any sort of self-improvement process. So, so I think you can have both. And then, and then really, because your point is true, there's this whole thing about extroversion, introversion, and most of it, most of us have it wrong that it's that, that how we think of an introvert or extrovert is, is not the right way. It's not the accurate way. Here's the explanation. An extrovert gets their energy from outside. Therefore, they direct their energy outside. An introvert gets their energy from exactly what you said, introspection, from, from within. So therefore, they direct their energy in, right? That's when they're at their harmony. Now, it doesn't mean that an introvert can't be can't operate like an extrovert. It just takes more energy. Mm. It leaves them feeling drained and wants and, and, and incentivizes them to as quick as they can get back inside themselves. Mm. And that's kind of what explains my example, right? Cause I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just shy and an introvert extrovert, uh, exists on a continuum introvert, pure introvert is on this end. Pure extrovert is at this end. Almost everybody is somewhere along that that line, right? And so I'm just this side of of the introvert side. Okay. So so I I go all the way over here, right? When I'm at work and when I'm with clients and when you know something has to be done, I need to I need to be influential. That's yeah. where I'm at. But the more time I spend over there, the more the more energy I expend. And the more my tendency is to go back to a place of introspection, right? Where I, where I can refuel and, and the, the energy it takes to maintain that continuum comes from the universe. 
So, so the, so I can recharge my batteries quicker if I actually take advantage of relationships and, and put the work in and the energy in to make them positive. Then when I spend time on the inside, I can actually recharge better and faster and then be able to perform over here when I need to. Gotcha. So, so that's kind of the essence of the relationships. So having both is important, but also recharging is important for someone who's any component of introvert. We just have to understand of ourselves and others, right? And appreciate that that's where we get our energy. Therefore, that's where we direct our energy. So it's really important to, to recharge that way. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes I'm like, am I extroverted? I don't know. Am I, I like? I mean, I do a lot of extroverted stuff, but I'm like, I don't know if I am extroverted. I think you're probably like me. My assessment of you, knowing what I know, Dan, is that I'm guessing you're, you're just this side of the extroversion line. On that continuum, introversion here, extroversion here, mm-hmm. this be in the middle, somebody who's 50-50, you're, you're, you're probably 60-40. Okay. That's my guess. That makes sense. Because there are times where I'm like, I need people to leave me the fuck alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I need, I need quiet. I need alone. I need to go within. I need to rewind all of these experiences I've just had and, like, be able to process them and interpret them in right. silence. Exactly. No phones, no music, nothing. I just need no stimulus right now. Exactly. Yep. And so that's, that's probably where you're getting your energy from. And then, but then there's times where if I go too long without people or being around people, and then I also get where like a battery that just like sits on, it's like in the charging port too long. Right. Right. And it's yep. like, yo, I got to get out. I've got to give this to people. Right. Exactly. Um, so you, that's why sometimes I'm that's confused. That's a perfect example. Sometimes that's why I'm like, am I introverted or extroverted? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm like, but that makes sense that I'm, I'm like somewhere in that middle line. Yeah. My assessment is that that's where you're at. And it's, and it's, I mean, anywhere on that line is a good place to be. But, but to your point about, and, and in, in a way, my example, let's say, let's say you're, you realize your, your, your fuel tank is low, your battery's running low and you know, you got to spend some time with yourself to recharge as an introvert, right? Direct your energy inward, get your energy from inward, and then later go out to the extrovert side. And how would you balance making a positive connection or relationship with that? Because you got to speak. Right. You got to engage somebody else. Well, two things. Number one, it's not always humans that can Mm. talk back to you that help you with this energy thing, right? It's not always humans. Plants, yeah, dogs. I love dogs. Animals. Right? I love dogs. Yeah, I fucking love dogs. So it's other beings, creatures, and organisms on the planet. Plants and cacti are organisms too. Right. Right. The earth. Yeah. See, I mean, you can get energy from that. Yeah. You put energy in, it will give you energy back ten times over. You water it. I mean, that's why you know people talk to their plants and shit. You know, some might be like, what are you, off your rocker? What? Plant can't hear you. No. It can, though. It can, right? It's, it's a living, breathing organism. Right. 
So, so you don't always have to get your energy from people. So that's one thing. The other thing, if it happens to be people, right, how you, how you engage that person can minimize the interaction time, but maximize the energy flow. Mm. Right. So like if I'm, I'm walking down the street and there's a, there's a, uh, like a city worker there emptying one of the city garbage cans on the sidewalk. You know, if I want to be in my own headspace and I'm recharging and I'm walking down the street, I got two choices. I can walk down the street, and completely ignore that dude. I mean, I will literally never see him again in my entire life. Right. Ever. So chance encounter one time only for a whole lifetime for either one of us. So I could either choose to do that and go, huh, it's nothing. Or I could choose to get some energy in my tank by simply walking by him and looking at him in the eye and say, hey, man, thanks for keeping our city clean. And just keep on walking. That took two seconds out of my introverted time. For two seconds, I had to jump over that line. Then right back. Right. Jump over the line. Get a whole bunch of energy, and then right back. Some of the, some of like very more profound or experience or, or to, you know, what you're saying is like energizing experiences I've had are from complete strangers. Yeah. Talking to complete strangers. Yep. I know a lot of people be like, you know, sometimes if we're, we're out places, like I'd be traveling, and a lot of times I'll just start conversations with random people around me. Right. Um, I always thought it was weird if you didn't, like you're sharing the space together. So it's like, why would you not talk? If somebody sees you, you see them. Like it's almost weirder to not engage, even if it's a simple like, hello. Right. How are you? And right? that's a good, that's a good mentality to have. That's a good philosophy to have. I got that from my grandfather on my dad's side of the family. He'll talk to fucking anybody. <laughs> <laughs> literally anyway i remember my nana would always my nana was much more introverted where my my papa was like much more extrovert i mean he right. has like a ham radio yeah and he like talks on on a ham radio <laughs> to people on the other side of the planet right he'll like That's i awesome. mean he literally has a tool to just talk to anybody who will listen to him right um that's awesome yeah i know if you would have you know if you'd take the time to learn like modern technology you could have you could talk to anybody right <laughs> exactly. even more people but he, he loves ham radio yeah and so he just you know he taught and i think i got that from him right um i like i'll go out and and some of it pro is just i don't know maybe it's my energy that people feel also yeah. i've been a giant human being for a right. good bit of my life right so that like draws attention and people yeah. want to like comment on that or like it like people will say stuff to me so i'm just right take the opportunity to have absolutely. a conversation with them absolutely and that's and that's acknowledging that is 99 percent of the battle in the relationship pillar in right and that, that piece so i think between those two relationships and and mindfulness stress that's probably those two things are the highest yield, but least amount of actual effort. Perceived effort is something altogether different. It's a high level of perceived effort, but actual effort is really hardly anything. 
on both those pillars. Um, so that's what I think listeners and, and viewers probably could, could get most of the, the bang for the buck and it could be something that happens right away. Explain the difference between perceived effort and actual effort. Right. Cause I don't think, I think it, that that's a term that gets, is gets thrown around in the scientific community of exercise science. Um, but it obviously echoes outside even beyond exercise science. Exactly. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure people fully have an understanding of that. Right. And I would love to get your idea of it too. I think one great example is, especially if it comes to like strength, right? Yeah. Is we've all heard and read about these stories and news reports of, of under certain circumstances, superhuman strength. Yeah. Like, car rolls over a, a, a kid and some guy just goes to the bumper and just, you know, and he lifts that car up off the ground, kid gets out underneath it. But in a different situation, without a kid under it, you ask the same guy to go out and, and lift that car up, he wouldn't even come close. Right. So that's a perceived effort versus actual effort, Right the perception of the amount of effort and work and energy that it would take for me to go out and lift that car supersedes my, my brain power, my ability to wrap my mind around the actual effort it would take to do that. But when it's an emergency and a crisis and I care about what's going on, I don't have time nor do I have the, the wherewithal or intention to perceive my effort first because the perception always becomes, it comes before the effort in everyday mm -hmm. circumstances. But that example I just gave is proof that that's the very thing that limits us mm. is that perception. So, so perceived effort can, can kind of take the wind out of our sails. Yeah. Right. But it also has, has, power to work for us right so if we minimize the perceived effort oh that's not that much yeah all of a sudden the actual effort is easier right and we remove the limiting factor so so there's other times when something's pretty easy actually but the perception is so high that it does the reverse of the example I gave you with the guy lifting the car off the kid. It does the reverse. It's the opposite. Something that's actually easy seems and becomes, because we perceive it, insurmountable. Mm. And it's the example with meditation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, man, I can't do this too hard. It's just awkward. It feels weird. I'm a, yeah, no, mm-mm. -mm. So then all of a sudden it's impossible for us to do it. Impossible. Can't do it. So that's the that's my take on the perceived versus actual effort. Yeah. How does that how does that compare with yeah. your take on it? Um I think a lot of people it's like think about procrastination. Right. Procrastination is there's there's a couple there's a lot of there's a few things that are wrapped up in procrastination but one of them is the perceived effort it may take to do this thing right so you keep putting it off 
Right. And then think of how many times you've put something off and you put it off so long it shoots you in the foot and then finally you have to do it because an anthill turned into a mountain. Yeah. And then you do it. As they always do. Right, as they always do. (laughs) And then you do it and you're like, why the hell did I just not do this when I was supposed to do this? Right. Right? And it's like, this was a lot less effortless than I thought it was going to be. And the perceived effort of it was like, it was making me feel like I had a hundred thousand pounds laying on top of me and like I couldn't do it. Um, perceived effort. One of the things that I do when it, like in the, for training, right? right? So this is in the world of training. When I, I start training new clients, once I establish like a baseline for them of, of, technique and form and they have the ability to like brace and control their breathing we get the baseline down right. of all the shit they need i will teach them now now it's the time to start learning how to push beyond your limits right which are self-imposed which are self-imposed and some of it is a biological mechanism right because the brain will tell the body to start giving up at 40 percent. right right just survive that's how the brain works it's like hey we want the path of least resistance right our job as humans since we're conscious is to push past our animalistic nature right push past the you know our wiring as animals right as homo sapiens right i will do I have a bunch of different things that I do, but the one that I do early is I put people on a leg extension machine because it's you cannot get hurt on a leg extension machine. Right. There's no balance. There's no coordination. You're literally sitting in one joint moves right. the whole time. Right. So I'll do it at the end of a leg day, and I'll tell somebody, I'll be like, hey, we've got two sets of this. we got to do two sets of 15. They do the first set. They kind of figure out where they're at. And I'm like, okay. I need your second set of 15. This is it. We're done after this. So, but I need the second set of 15 to be it. Like you could do 15, but you couldn't do 16. Right. That's what you have to think about in your head. Right. Okay, cool. Have them throw the weight on. They get to 15. I go do one more. They do one more. I go do one more. They do one more. And I go do five more. They do five more. (laughs) And I go do five more when they get there. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. And a lot of times they end up getting to like 25, 30, 35 reps. Right. And then after they're done, then, like, then they're smoked. Right? right. And I go, I was like, look, I asked you to do 50, your, your max 15. Right. And you thought this was your max 15. And in fact, you were going to quit. You were going to be done at 15. Right. And I just got another 10, 15, 20 reps out of you. Right. Imagine what you were leaving on the table. Right. Right. Imagine your that that limiting that that perceptive thought of what you could do right. was wrong. Right. It was a lie. Right. This is what you're actually capable of. Right. And so this is our baseline from yep. here on out. Yep. And it like changes everything for people. Yeah. Like absolutely. teaching them to get because like part of what I do after we get past a certain place is my job is to take you out to the limits of your, like the, to the limits of, of your ability. Right. Right. Or the perceived limits of your ability a lot of times. Right. And so we get to the edge and a lot of trainers, what they'll do is just to like, they, for ego purposes need to be like, Oh, that guy, like it's hard. Right. Like that guy killed me. There's a time and a place to kill people. Right. But 
I need you to get to a pool. First, I have to get you sound and competent right. first in, exactly. in abilities right. and skills because right. strength and training is skills, right? right? So I have to get you to a place where you can be safe and take care of yourself. Right. But once we get past that, now it's time to start playing the mind games, right? right? And really start pushing ourselves and developing that grit and mental toughness. Right. So I'm going to take you to the edge of your limits and then bring you right back. Right. Not take you past. Right. Not take you, not max you out and not bl blow past. Right. Take you to just kiss it. Yep. I just want you to get the lip. Yeah. Just quick. <laughs> and then bring you right back. Yeah. And then when we come back, I get you, I take you back there again. Right. And then I bring you right back. Right. And what you'll notice after time is each time we go out to your limit, go a we further. have to travel further yeah. and further. Right. And eight months, 12 months kicks in. And next thing you know, you look back and you're a completely different person. Exactly. Yeah, that's the magic. And so th that's kind of, that's how I use the perceived limits to break through right. to where your actual limits are. Right. Because um, a lot of times, and that example is another perfect one, perceived effort will define the actual effort. Right. And then you operate off that and you wonder why you never have success. You never transform. You yeah. never turn into what it is that you're wanting to turn into. Right. Because, it, I mean, think about it. In that example of the superhuman strength, we call it superhuman strength. It's still human strength. Right. And, and the guy lifted the car off the kid because he actually knew he had to. Yeah. So he had no perceived effort there was no way out right and so if you look so, for don't if, you think then we could all <clears throat> lift a car up by the bumper yes i mean in theory we all we all have we all have the ability to right we all have the ability to do superhumans superhuman shit right if you look for a way out you'll find it right but when there's no way out you'll find a way exactly you'll find the way through yep I like that. And and that is part of being put in adversity. Right. That's part of like life getting put in these situations. Like what we were talking about earlier. The cycles of life, yes. suffering, right? Pain. You know, joy, elation, anxiety, insomnia, right? All these things are part of the human experience. Yes. And so what I think we're, you just said, the point I think you just made, correct me if I'm wrong, is that's the shit that builds the, the strength to allow us to minimize or maximize, depending on the goal, perceived effort. Because if we, if we believe there's a low amount of effort that's going to go into something, then it takes little effort. Or if we don't believe there's effort then we can do amazing things if we don't put that limit on ourselves. That's exactly what I'm saying. Wow. <laughs> that is so cool. That is exactly, because think about it. I, I just think for personal experiences, the things that I thought were really hard from a training perspective, now I look at them and I'm like, they're not, the, they're not hard. Right. Right. They're not as hard as I once thought they were. And right. then, you know, there is some too I've built and honed and, and I'm stronger now than I was then. Right. But I think early on in my training career and, and early on as an athlete, there was days where I like killed a workout 
right? I came in and I lifted this crazy weight for a crazy amount of reps or it was a conditioning test and I smoked the conditioning right. test. Easy. It was a breeze. Right. And then, you know, maybe a week or two later, I was like, man, fuck, I know we got one tens coming up today. <laughs> I don't want to run these things. <laughs> and it's the same amount of distance. It's the same run, same time that I have to do all of it. And I don't do as well. Or I don't even make my times on a run that I just breezed past right. and the only thing was different was my mind exactly nothing else was different right and so then it was like learning how to regulate my emotions yep over time made me it was was one of the big keys to perceived effort right right it was like hey I, i've done the hard things enough that it was like i under i'm able to actually correctly diagnose the effort level that is needed yeah and then tap into the mindset that is like hey this is going to take a lot of effort let's get ourselves there let's right. who i am going to inten intentionally focus with all of my effort on this thing and i'm going to fucking do this right. thing right that's really hard exactly right and then it may be hard, but it's not as hard as I could make it if I was like, man, I don't want to do this. <laughs> exactly. This is going to be too you made hard. It easier. Yes. Right. You could make it easier by being like, yo, this thing's going to be so hard. Like, I got to give it everything I have, and you do it, and then it's a breeze. Right. Um, and that's how perceived effort can be convertible. Right. It can either work against you or for you. Right. And I think that that's where when you start doing hard things consistently, you start learning how to tap into running towards the hard effort things instead of running away from them. Well, because you learn every time you, you exert actual effort under certain circumstances, then over time you learn. So if you keep doing hard fucking things, good things happen, right? We have to realize that we're strong beings meant to do hard things. Yeah. Right. And again, the more hard things you do, you're conditioning your perceived effort to be lower and allow your actual effort to to be more comfortable and more balanced. Yeah. I tell my guys when we first start training, um, I always say, I'll be like, don't worry, it only gets easier from here. And then I stop and I go, well, it doesn't get easier. I was like, but you get stronger. Right. Yep. You'll get That's stronger. Cool. I love that one. Because it doesn't get easier. <laughs> and in right. fact, I'll make it harder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you get stronger. Right. Physically and mentally. Right. And that is, I think, it's important to do hard things. Right? I always, I always tell my guys, like, yo, we got to keep ourselves humble. Right. Especially, especially us men. It's really, it's really easy to, like, get a conflated ego yeah. or to think life and the world is easier than it really is right. if you don't humble yourself enough. Exactly. Like, I know this from experience. It's really easy, at least, like, I have definitely become victim of my ego in becoming, like, arrogant or overconfident in life. Right. And, and particularly my own abilities. Right. Right? Or, or my habits or the way I'm conducting myself. And then something happens, right? The world has a beautiful way of like always finding a way to help. <laughs> It'll us, correct, yeah. Right? And so then it's like, okay, let me just find things to keep myself humble all the time. Right. Right? Whether it's having certain people around me or doing certain things to remind me. And in that process, 
you become an extremely capable human being. Exactly. Because I think people think we're not. Capable and versatile. C- capable and versatile. And to, to piggyback off your point about people forget how strong we actually are. Right. And it's like Wolf's Law, right? The body will adhere to any and all... Uh, the, the body will adhere to any and all stressors placed upon it. Right. Right. So it's like your body will adapt to any situation. You just have to put yourself under those right stressors. Exactly. So it's like, if you have this thought of this person you want to be, you have to first figure out what it is that it takes to be that person. And then you start putting yourself in those situations, thinking already as if you are that person. In other words, be that person. Right. You've got to be the person you want to be before you become. Which is hard. 100% is hard. (laughs) So again, we're back to doing hard things. Doing hard things. Yeah. Yeah, doing hard things is, I think, the answer to a lot, which people don't love to hear. Right. But, you know. Yep. The things we need to do aren't always things we love to hear. Well, yeah, and, and I mean to the to the to the to the opposite point, the yin to the yang. In that case, obviously we've we've spent this whole time talking about in lots of different ways how we need to do hard things and how it's better to do hard things. But part of what makes that hard is the universal truth that all matter in the universe wants to occupy the lowest energy state possible at any given point in time. It's a universal truth. Mm. It's a second law of thermodynamics. And so overcoming that tendency to minimize energy expenditure really is what makes something hard. But then again, it, it, it helps us do everything else we want to accomplish. So that's really the, the connection. Mm. I think this is a great place to end this conversation. Yeah, it was great. One of two reasons. One, I don't know if we can top that. Yeah. Two, we've got to make it to dinner. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And we've got we've got we two got some, we've got, got two ribeyes ribeyes. We've got right. some ribeyes to get. We also have two beautiful women who might be angry if we're if oh, we're yeah, late. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. They're probably they're having such a good time without us right now. Oh yeah. Now. Well, they're still not here yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, let's sign off here, but like, let's give people a little rundown where to find you. Um, yeah. if they're interested in, uh, your practice and needing your guidance to improve your health, their health from a physical, mental, spiritual standpoint, how to reach out to you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, old mission medicine. So the website is www.oldmissionlifestylemedicine.com. Find us there and, uh, and reach out, ask questions. Uh, happy to help. Yeah. And for the record, I've been, we just got blood work done. Yep. We got, we got my blood work done. We've reviewed it. We've gone through the whole process. Um, and it was a great experience Absolutely. on my part. Great. Um, Good to hear it. Yeah. Um, so I fully endorse um, old missions medicine. Awesome. So, um, and I also like, he didn't, I paid for it. Right. Yeah. This was not an ad. Right. I paid for the service. Absolutely. So I actually paid my hard earned money for the service. Um, just for a disclaimer. Well, like, it, it, and I think I need to say too, Dan, that, that I was a client of yours. Right. So, so I engaged you in a, in a consultation to talk a, a lot about nutrition and exercise to try and accomplish my own goals. So thanks for that. No problem, man.
People helping people. That's right. All right. Hell yeah. Let's get out of here. We're signing off, ladies and gentlemen. We'll catch you later. Time for dinner. Peace. Peace.